Welcome to Sport Management Review Insights. I'm your host, Vito Sobral. Sport, corruption, and the media are all topics we've discussed on this podcast, and of course, have been areas of research published in Sport Management Review. Well, in this episode, we're bringing all these topics together to discuss how perceptions of sport corruption influence media communication. Joining us to consider this is someone who's published several articles on sport, communication, and corruption. She's a senior lecturer in sports marketing and communications at Loughborough University. It's Elisavet Manoli. Welcome, Elisavet. Well, nice to see you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's a great uh, pleasure to have you on. Elisavet and co-author Camille Bandura recently published Perceptions of the Role of Traditional and Social Media in Communicating Corruption. Uh, Elisavet, uh, we previously had a podcast with Lisa Keel on fraud in community sport. And so we know what a big problem corruption is in sport all across the world. How did this research give us a different understanding of, of sport corruption? Well, we started looking into corruption and it kind of the role of media was kind of a side product of the whole um, research because we were indeed looking into corruption and the, the social effects it has. That, that was the support we were given by the British Academy to look into the sort of societal role of corruption in sport. But the more we talked to people, the more it came up that media had a key role within communicating corruption, within understanding and perceiving corruption. But the more we looked into the data we had collected, it became more interesting that we keep looking at how media communicate corruption and how they play an important role. But quite honestly, the way that people spoke about media was influenced by the corruption itself. So the question has never been reversed. And this is what we, we actually did. We have particular perceptions of corruption, which are, of course, influenced by various factors, and we're going to talk about it soon, I'm, I'm sure. But these perceptions actually influence our perceptions of the media themselves. So the communicator basically became our, our point of focus, because we don't think of media in one, you know, one singular way. It was actually interesting to think that the tool itself is flexible, depending on what it is they're communicating. So that's, that's what we mainly learn about. In this particular study, we didn't learn you know, something new about corruption, apart from the fact that the way in which we perceive it can give us a whole spectrum of views on how we perceive the media. It's a fascinating way to look at it because uh, yeah, I don't think anyone would have considered that, or I'm sure others would have considered it. I would definitely wouldn't have considered that. Was that somehow influenced by, uh, we used to probably be adversaries back in our uh, working days, you being in PR, you know, me being a journalist, I, I can see how we would have fought, but uh, was it somehow influenced by your background in that area? I don't admit it out loud, but yes, uh, I have done research all my academic life. I've done research on marketing communications management, which is what I used to do when I worked in the football industry. And then I've done research in corruption because I've always had an interest in the things that I noticed whilst working in professional sport. So connecting these two, I think, will be my final goal in a way. And I have been doing increasing research on it because I, I find them interconnected in so many different ways. And yes, maybe it's influenced by, by what I used to do. But I also think that it's also an area that we don't talk about a lot. Like it's not, it's not a researched area. And I don't understand why, because we've researched media, we've researched corruption. Why not put the two together? When you're coming up with a theory for this, you know, where did you start looking? How did you come up with a, a theory to understand this? Well, we looked into corruption. So we, we had already a good understanding of the literature around corruption. 
and not so much corruption overall, as in, you know, how it's defined, etc. but our perceptions of corruption. That's what we are interested in. We had looked a little bit in it because there's, unfortunately, there isn't a lot of literature on the perceptions of corruption. There's very few studies in sport. Most of it comes from the typical political corruption that has been looked at and how that can vary depending on how severe we perceive it to be. Again, going back to our social demographic characteristics, going back into the norms of our environment and the norms of the industry in which we are operating. So we we had that as a background in a way. And then we started looking into the role of traditional social media. So communications, but not in the way of how we understand communications, but what is it? What is the role of media? What is the role of social media? And of course, there's a lot of literature coming up on it, especially now with the discussions of, okay, our media something kind of rigid and then social media is a new way a new democratizing tool you know flattening the whole situation and making sure that it extends the communication process so we looked a bit into that and there's a lot of literature that underlines how important media have always been traditional and social but historically traditional in communicating corruption in acting as a, a lever of pressure to the government to ensuring transparency and good governance in, again, a, a society. Don't forget that most of the literature, again, comes from the kind of the traditional communication sphere and not the sport communication sphere. So we kind of tried to combine this with a whole discussion around social media and what we're all talking about, fake news. So we tried to bring all of this together and see how it would fit, bearing in mind that the, some of the vocabulary that we saw coming up in the focus groups. Like they're the exact same words, it's a vocabulary used in the literature. And the individuals we questioned, of course, didn't have a background in communication. So they they weren't coming prepared to it. They were actually discussing something else. And these words kept coming up. So it was very interesting to see how well the two fit together. You just mentioned that there, um, you actually used focus groups for this research. In fact, you conducted 18 focus groups. Now, I imagine politicians around the world would be green with envy about that many focus groups. But why did you think uh, focus groups were the ideal methods here? I would love to talk about focus groups. And I have. I've given a seminar to our PhD students here in for a couple of years ago, because I really appreciate focus groups as a tool, as a methodological tool. But I know that they are debated a lot in academic circles because of validity reasons, because of bias reasons, etc. I think that if you want to get people to talk to each other and get this dynamic between them, so quite often with these questions, you ask a question, they get into this discussion, even heated debate, and that goes really far from your target. But within that going far, this is how this study came up, because we were not asking them about media. But because of how it went, we started seeing that it, it evolved into something completely different that was so rich and so and the research that maybe we should explore that. Six focus groups from each uh, allowed us to get enough data to basically reach the point of saturation. And, but I had to read a lot around focus groups and to read about, again, how to avoid all the pitfalls of potential social desirability bias and other issues that might come up with you know, particular members being quiet or not really being honest. So we had to try and avoid as many pitfalls as we can. But as with any piece of research, of course, there's limitations. And of course, if we had different participants, we might have found something different. 
and it does sound like it takes a lot of preparation though i can imagine the logistics for this were, were very difficult to organize they were but at the same time they were they were equally very interesting so it's the same as organizing interviews and you know you, you plan an interview with um, an informed participant and you plan your trip and you're on your train there and you realize that after two hours of traveling your meeting is canceled so it's the same and quite often you have to play with the numbers but often you have to over recruit these are just some of the the issues the obstacles that you always face when you do research all all methods come with their own preparation and difficulties i just appreciate that this method allowed us a lot of very good powerful rich data as you mentioned, it collected a lot of rich data there. How did you go about analyzing what I assume was a fairly big amount of data? It was, it was a lot of data. Everything was, uh, was recorded from the beginning. And of course, the participants knew about it. And we then had to transcribe everything. And it was great that we had the, the support of the British Academy because that gave us some money to help with the transcription. But the, the analysis bit was where it got more interesting because, again, we were not originally going we did not plan for this study to take the shape that it did. Uh, we just started writing all the themes down. And the more we wrote about them, we went back into the data and we spent a lot of time on it. And it was two of us working on it, which was very good in terms of you know bouncing ideas of each other. We realized that we were going around the same topics again and again and again. And we didn't actually think of this, this idea of the spectrum until we had already coded the data. We had already written down the themes. And whilst looking back at the original transcripts, something just clicked at some point. And this is where it made sense. This is how the, the arrow at the bottom came up on that, uh, that figure we have, because it was this going back and forth. It was this kind of, you know, reading again and again and all our notes and seeing the quotes that were missing. And it was a very good process, but I've, I've always enjoyed this, this manual labor if you if you want this idea of you have your transcripts we already remember a lot of the quotes because we conducted the focus groups ourselves so you remember how it happened and then you see it written and it, it becomes more powerful that way it, it was really beautiful to kind of you know see all this data scattered on the table and then this kind of makes sense all together in a graph a figure so tell us about the, the figure that you created. What were the, the key findings from that laborious process of going through and coding your data? Well, the, the idea that our perceptions of the severity of corruption actually influence our perceptions of traditional social media is true. So yes, there is a clear influence there. And based on the three cases we, we identified, so a low perceived severity, a moderate perceived severity, and a high perceived severity, we saw that in the case of traditional media, our opinions, in, in both cases, our opinions change a lot. But in the case of traditional media, when we get the, the more severe our perception of the corruption case is, the more important we consider traditional media to be. So that's where traditional media are uh, viewed as you know, informative, useful, that they're a key communicator of corruption, that they help in the process of everybody finding out about this serious allegations. But then the, the less the perceived severity is, the more this idea of, you know, maybe traditional media are cherry picking the stories, maybe they're over promoting particular types of corruption, because that allows them to neglect other types of corruption. So that's where we saw a lot of debate around, oh, why are they always promoting stories around financial corruption? And we don't see serious cases about 
production and support in traditional media. And then when we got down to the low perceived severity of corruption, that's when the opinions expressed about traditional media were more uh, about their role of distracting us from other news. So that, oh yes, they would promote a story that is a white case of corruption. Uh, so a low perceived severity because that would get a headline and people would pay attention to that and maybe we will forget a political scandal as it was uh, one of the examples expressed. So th this is where traditional media are seen to exaggerate the whole story. Similarly, in social media, the only mention of fake news or lack of trust so, towards social media came up when we discussed a case of low perceived severity. So the higher, again, our perception of how severe a corruption case is, the higher our level of trust or our opinion of social media was, our, the, the participants. Again, high perceived severity uh, corruption case, that's when social media are a great democratic tool for corruption, where everybody can come in, they can be open, they can express their views, and everybody can learn this information. So it's a communications tool, and it's, it's a way of, again, flattening the whole communications landscape. Interestingly, under this, we also saw individuals talk about how they themselves reflected on how they use social media, as in, it can be a useful tool, and that made me realize that maybe sometimes I'm not treating it as such, or it's a, a serious tool. My comment sometimes would be too rushed. Maybe I need to think about it. So I, we, we thought that was actually very interesting to see how our future use of social media changes based on how we perceive them. Then in the, in the moderate perceived severity, there were some positive views, as in, yes, they extend the communication process. So we, we talked again about the flattening of the whole landscape. But this is also when they criticized traditional media and said that social media helped overcome some of their, uh, their issues. And then further down, we went into that perceived severity scale. That's when they became subjective and distracting and a joke and fake news, as I said before, came up. And our trust towards them was also gone. So it, it was very interesting to see how that formed, because again, really emerged from the data. I had such high hopes when you said there was trust in traditional media uh, at the high scale, the, 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 the severe corruption. And then it just went downhill from there. And it was a great letdown after that. So um, I'm, I'm very sad to hear that. But no, r really important findings, r really interesting. How did this uh, advance your understanding? What does this all mean in the end? In terms of the trust that you mentioned, there's um, uh, a very, very interesting report from the European Broadcasting Union. And they, they've always looked at the different channels, social and traditional in Europe. And they've, they've said that trust is going down in all forms of communication tools. So traditional social media, our trust is very low. In the case of the UK, it actually ranks very low. So quite often it's at the bottom of um, all other countries, which is a bit, a bit scary if you think about it, because we use traditional media. The TV might be on in some houses all day. We use social media. So there is a lack of trust. What we found, and we, we thought was very interesting, is that when there is a serious problem, when there is a case of corruption that we perceive to be very severe, we still trust that media and social media will play their part. So I would see this article, this study, as actually giving hope that that role that they can have, this idea, the first academics writing about it 150 years ago, that 
media can be a watchdog for, for corruption. That still applies if reporters, individuals working in traditional media, if all of us using social media take our role as part of this communication process, as communicators ourselves, in the case of social media, seriously. So there is still hope if we all act in the way that we're supposed to act. But the more we allow information that is less severe, or the more we allow for cases that might not be in a way that thoroughly uh, searched to allow for people to understand their severity, the more we risk losing that trust and being perceived as fake news and having people switching off from traditional media. For me, I think this is kind of like an eye-opener. So it's up to us. People still have this idea that media in their social or traditional form are very important. But it's up to us using them and the individuals employed within them to take that seriously moving forward. Let's say that uh, the EBU, the European Broadcasting Union, broadcasters around the world all said, you have the answers. How would you counsel us? What would you tell us to do in today's modern media environment? I would say that I think we need to utilize the power of social media and we need to utilize the element of the open, the openness of social media. So opening to new stories that are actually emerging through social media and making sure that they are also filtered in traditional media. That would be the first way to level the playing field overall, to kind of stop that divide, because in a way, you know, this information, this idea of not just the top-down approach that we normally see traditional media, but the bottom-up, that actually materializes in uh, traditional media as well. So that the first one goes under the, you know, the selection of the topics broadcasted. The second bit would be to pay attention to how things are being communicated. I say broadcasted, but the same applies in social media. Things need to be communicated accurately. So media are supposed to help for transparency to be ensured. Well, they need to make sure that they themselves are transparent. So if there are biases, and there will always be biases, we live in a, in a socially constructed world, they need to be clear. And they need to be made clear at any point from the social media perspective to the traditional media perspective. This will help people understand that they're choosing to pay attention to this. But what they are paying attention to comes with all these parameters that they need to be aware when they're making their decisions. I don't know if that would lead to a less polarized type of communication, but I, I would prefer kind of like a neutral playing field of communication, which I think if I am allowed a comment that goes beyond this study, I feel that we're currently missing, we are missing that kind of, you know, this is a piece of information and I am bringing it to you. And I trust your critical thinking as the object of my communication, as the, the receiver. I trust you to analyze this information and make up your own mind. I'm not going to try and influence you with my own opinions and my own kind of different stimuli. So for me, that, that would be the first few steps to take. But I don't claim to have, to have all the answers. So my um, moderate view would be that I would like more of us to do research on communications. I would like more of us to do research on traditional social media, not writing one or the other off, but trying to figure out what is happening. Why are people disengaging? or complaining, or not trusting, and how can we make them trust us again? I'm definitely 
all for more media research uh, in all aspects. Uh, and, and what I get from that, all I could hear was we need to fund better newsrooms, pay journalists more. That's what I got from that. Uh, so I hope that's exactly what you were saying. No, uh, I, I think that's really important advice uh, and fascinating research. I'm fascinated by it. Of course, this is part of my background, but it, it was great to, to hear uh, about this article. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. Well, thank you for your kind words. And again, I wouldn't disagree with paying reporters more. They're doing a great job. But I, I would again say that the more research we have on the topic, the better. Thank you for having me again. It was really... It's really good to talk about this type of research because I'm, I'm hoping that, again, more people will get access to this kind of information and hopefully they will read the article if they like it. And thanks for listening to Sport Management Review Insights. At the Sport Management Review website, you'll find all the latest research being published, including the article discussed in this episode, Perceptions of the Role of Traditional and Social Media in Communicating Corruption. That's it for this episode, but of course, there's plenty more episodes you can download to your favourite podcast player. Until then, it's bye for now.